0: drug discovery is becoming more expensive and producing less results than ever before. Why? Partly due to middlemen called contract research organizations, or CROs. When a pharma or biotech company needs a clinical trial doing, they often call up a CRO to do it for them. Hey, what's happening? We've got a promising new drug and we need a clinical trial. What's the price?
1: It could be a little, it could be a lot. I don't know. Shut up. Can we get a ballpark figure? Well, a pivotal clinical trial for one of your drugs, is going to cost you like 20 to 30 million dollars. But for every drug that makes it onto the market, you're going to need 30 to 40 of those trials. So all in all, it'll be like two to three billion dollars per drug. Capisce? Do you, Do you take
0: Amex? Okay, I'm messing around here. But as Charlie Munger says, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. CROs are incentivized to make these clinical trials as bloated and inefficient as possible because they're effectively paid by the hour. Imagine you were paid to wash cars by the hour. Would you try and wash lots of cars? Or would you take your sweet old time on one? Check Twitter, maybe have a cigarette break. Well, that's the situation Linda's Health are trying to fix. They're the hot new challenger on the block and they've run almost 100 trials through their platform and just raised their $18 million Series A round, with investors including legendary tech billionaire, Peter Thiel. Thank you to Mitty Taya, also an investor, for introducing me to Linda's CEO, Mary Beckwith.
1: For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with the problem of like productivity and life sciences, basically. So like how we develop new medicines, new treatments, I mean, essentially, the productivity around life sciences has been getting exponentially worse. So there's this thing called Eroom's Law, which describes the exponential increase in cost to develop a new drug, a new medicine over the last, like since 1950, over the last 70 years. That's pretty terrifying when you think about it. Like one of our most important industries is getting you know, exponentially less efficient. Um, and so I've always been obsessed with, you know, why this was happening and uh, whether there was anything we could do to solve it. And, you know, as I was working in venture capital, investing in early stage, kind of health tech life sciences companies. And, and you know, it, the answer started to dawn on me because, um, Essentially, most of the cost to develop new medicines, new new health treatments, are the cost of clinical trials to show those treatments are are safe and effective. And what I was seeing on the ground with you know early stage biotechs, digital health companies, was that you know when it came to running these clinical trials, just out, outcomes were like really bad and frustrating. Um, they were always kind of over budget, late, uh, and you know there were just always always problems. And then I had a a kind of a separate experience when I I volunteered to take part in a few clinical trials as a participant, including one of the big COVID vaccine phase three trials. And that was like just totally shocking because it was just unbelievably chaotic. And in particular, I could, you know, Just the way the trial was set up, I could tell they were just capturing very poor quality data, as well as ridiculous stuff like, you know, the company running the clinical trial couldn't build a website properly. So I had to download Internet Explorer to even sign up, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of the the high level background. And I think what what was the trigger to founding Lindus was I realized that, you know, most like pharma companies or biotech companies will hire a commercial company called a Contract Research Organization, CRO for short, to actually run their clinical trial. And it's this huge industry, it's kind of like a huge industry that, that not many people are aware of, but you know, 60, $70 billion, give or take. And essentially, you know, these CROs sit at the middle, they kind of have total budget, control over how the clinical trial runs, but they just do a terrible job. And this is what came up again and again in conversations with everyone from pharma execs down to kind of biotech founders. Um, and, you know, from these experiences of, of working in venture capital and, and also being on the, the clinical trials myself, I realized that the, the CRO model was just really broken and, and needed to change. And that, uh, yeah, that kind of sets the stage for what we're doing at
0: Linda's Health. Mary, some people hate injustice, some people hate traffic, and you hate contract uh, research <laughs> organizations. <laughs> um, can you talk about, like, why they exist, why pharma and biotech use these CROs? Like, if they are so terrible, like, why are they using them?
1: Well, I guess there are two reasons for this. So firstly, you know, in the 90s, this industry, despite being kind of kind of big and, and very clunky, it's actually only been around for sort of 20 or 30 years, or really 20 years. So in the 90s, you know, everyone used to run their own clinical trials, per, you know, overwhelmingly pharma. Um, but then pharma realized, like, they had so much kind of pricing power in the market, uh, they could just sort of, you know, outsource that as a way to save cost um, and then just do what they're doing today where pharma is almost like an investment bank where they just sort of move money between different programs and then maybe do distribution when things when things get approved. Um, so this kind of then created the CRO industry as these companies you could outsource like running the clinical trial to. This also worked for biotechs so as like the biotech industry has grown because you know virtually no biotechs have the resources to be able to build their own like clinical operations you know internal capability to run clinical trials in addition to all the other stuff they do around kind of target discovery and so on so this sort of created the the clinical trial industry uh and then also there's there's like a regulatory component to it where the regulations don't mandate this but they're sort of written with a view to like you know there are aspects of like clinical trial monitoring and sort of patient management that it just gets much easier if you have a third like in theory, a neutral third party do rather than like a, a deeply interested, you know, pharma company that creates a you know a problem of incentives. Um, so those are kind of the twin the you know the twin reasons why the CRO industry exists. And, and I think you know it does it, something like this kind of should exist. I'm definitely not, not arguing with that. So you say I hate CROs. I think I've come to hate them. I didn't. I don't think any of us like you know really hated them initially. We just saw it as a problem of kind of misaligned incentives. But I've gotta say like, I've spoken to enough and it's always the ex-CRO people. Um, I've spoken to enough ex-CRO people, pretty senior, and they've just confirmed like all of the worst things that, that, we, that we, or you know, we, we just hear terrible, terrible stories again and again. And I'm talking about like um, instances where, you know, essentially the CRO business model means that you make more money the worse a clinical trial goes because you're getting paid like by the hour essentially. And and there are just all these all these instances where CROs have essentially deliberately sabotaged clinical trials they're responsible for in order to make like a quick buck on, you know, charging five grand for the weekly PowerPoint catch-up meeting, like absurd stuff like that. Um and and you know, this 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 really affects patients, right? Like think of an oncology, you know, I heard about this in the context of a of a phase two clinical study for for non-responders for breast cancer. Like these people are gonna die unless they get you know, potentially this, this treatment on a clinical trial. So if you're, if you're like finding a way to delay that clinical trial by a couple of months, so you can make an extra 50, 100 grand, like that is
0: deeply unethical. And
1: that's the sort of stuff that goes on. And that's why, you know, we hate CROs.
0: The fundamental issue with a CRO, I mean, I think it was Warren Buffett, or is it a Charlie Munger that says that show me the incentives, and I'll show you the results. Yeah. So the <laughs> fundamental issue is that it's like a fee based service model, that they are incentivized if things go longer, they spend more time on things, they get paid more basically. And then your innovation here is that you are like results-based or the like value-based type stuff or what's, yeah. the, what's the change?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. So on the business model side, it's value-based. So we only ever do kind of a fixed price or a fixed quote for an entire clinical trial. Um, so our customers have certainty over how much it'll cost them. Uh, and then um, they only actually pay us as we hit certain milestones. Uh, and these are the milestones that matter to them. So it is it is entirely like kind of value based, uh, and you know we are contractually obligated to deliver outcomes the customer cares about, as opposed to a CRO, where like it always blows my mind that they are contractually obligated to deliver a number of hours, but those are like not at all linked to <laughs> to the outcomes a customer cares about. And it's so crazy to me that this has gone on well. For as long as it has, I think pharma definitely bears some responsibility for just letting the state of affairs continue, just the way their like procurement systems work. But you know, the result is that that to get a clinical trial to go right, and we hear this again and again from all of our customers, big and small, is they need to just micromanage a CRO because the CRO their only lever is like just throwing hours in different places, but doesn't actually necessarily mean they'll. Don't, you know they'll get any kind of result from it so uh, so yeah but, but you're right I mean you know, it is fundamentally a problem of incentives
0: yeah I've been thinking a lot about how people hate you know in quotes middlemen they're across society right and if you really boil down a lot of businesses or services they essentially operate as middlemen right like as a really simple example if you think of like uber like they don't they're not the driver and they're not the uh, person being driven around right they're like connecting the two people and taking a slice off the top um similarly in pharmaceuticals like more on the clinical side you have like pharmacy benefit managers PBMs and people also hate on them and say they bloat the cost of healthcare in the US um and then i guess in this in your world you've got these people these CROs do you think that there is a like like they must be adding value to exist like you know if you, when you have someone in the middle like this like there is some something there, like otherwise it just logically doesn't make sense they would exist, yeah. right? Or do you think it's like some perverse incentive structure that's caused them to stick around for so long?
1: I, I I think in the early days of the industry, they were probably adding value, where you know, giving giving kind of pharma and research sponsors that flexibility to to kind of shift capital between programs. I mean, also if you just think about like the resource allocation, if you're a biotech, you know, you could build a team internally but your need for like a clinical operations function might do this. Whereas if you work with an outsourced company, you're effectively pooling resources, et cetera. Um, but I think it's just gotten to the point where, because the barriers to entry in this industry are so high and because pharma is frankly such a terrible customer for any kind of innovative business model or new entrant, the CROs just have this entrenched position. And And again, like I, you know, I, I vacillate between thinking like the, the model is kind of evil, but and then there are like direct evil actors within CROs. I think it's a bit of both. Um, but like, you know, the the, the the market forces have just meant that they can they're just in this kind of privileged position and they've done what any what any kind of interested party would do and sort of take advantage of it.
0: You said um, pharma are bad customers for any innovative business. What does that mean? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I mean, any
1: of your listeners who, who maybe have a startup or who've sold to pharma and have seen what a pharma procurement process looks like, you know, they, they just have incredibly heavy duty processes to buy anything, um, you know, entire divisions devoted to, quote, procurement. And what that boils down to is if you're trying to sell kind of anything to pharma, you need to go through months and months of wrangling of questionnaires, and all of the questions are designed to help bias them towards like the biggest, most established companies possible. So it's like, you know, send me your audited financials for the last five years and like start, I mean, why would a startup ever, you know, pay to have their financials audited, right? So if you're trying to to create a product where pharma is the natural customer, it's just much, much harder as a startup if pharma is the only customer you can sell to because it's gonna take just a lot of effort and time and, you know, those are things that you're, you're resource-limited or resource-constrained by as a startup. So, so, yeah, whereas the big guys can just employ entire teams to deal with these, these pharma procurement processes.
0: Can you explain the impact or the scale of the clinical trials problem, sort of the bloat, the inefficiency in clinical trials, and how that feeds into the bigger picture of why it's becoming more expensive to bring new drugs to market? There was this JAMA paper I linked to you that from the headline at least my understanding was that it says getting a drug to market costs between one to three billion dollars and the clinical trials or at least the pivotal trials for that drug, they only make up about one percent of that cost, um, or around twenty million dollars. So like from that it seems like it's a relatively small issue in the bigger picture, but what's your take?
1: So the the disconnect there. So you're right that like I think the median cost for like a phase three pivotal study is about twenty million. Um the 2 billion per drug approved figure factors in all the drugs along the way that you still had to run clinical trials on that didn't make it. And this is the key thing, right? Because like, you only know if a drug works when you test it in humans. Like, you know, you read the newspapers every day about like, oh, scientists have discovered a cure for cancer, but it only works in rats or like cell models. Like, you, you know, you only you only know whether something works when you test it in humans. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the key problem with today's clinical trial ecosystem where, and it's not, you know, I think the, the, the operations, the part that we're disrupting is a big part of it. I'm not saying it's all of it. But, um, but you know, it is the, the kind of biggest bottleneck to enabling kind of much faster, safer, more rapid iteration, such that you don't need to run 50 kind of very long, drawn out, expensive $20 million clinical trials per drug you actually approve at the moment you need to run you know 30 40 pivotal studies for each for each drug that gets approved you total up the cost that's that's a billion dollars but the the individual study itself will be worth 20 30 million yeah
0: can you talk about how you get your first clinical trial or you get your first sort of uh pilots or taste of success it looks like from your site that you've initially focused on more digital health or digital drug or like decentralized type trials is that is that correct is that like a good way in So yeah, that was our,
1: that was our like entry point. So um, when we started the company, you know, our North star was always like, okay, we know to make a difference in this space, you need to be in charge of the entire clinical trial. That's really hard, particularly for a startup. And so then we thought like, okay, what's the, you know, what's the simplest clinical trial that we can do end to end and kind of prove out the model. And so, yeah, exactly as you said, we focused initially on digital health, uh, digital therapeutics, uh, kind of uh, not quite food supplements, but sort of, you know, functional food products or or foods, Technically, food supplement products that were making health claims, registered health claims, and so you know our early cohort of, of clinical trials were all all in those areas. I guess shout out to maybe Habitual, a uh, UK company, our first ever end to end clinical trial customer, whose who's, you know who, whose study we finished and, and went super well. But like you know, very grateful that there were there were a handful of companies there who were willing to trust us with something super important and 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 take a chance on a on a new provider.
0: Fundamentally, how do you compete with companies like IQVIA who probably have uh, coffee budgets or printer budgets, which are <laughs> <right> <laughs> together. Print print your budget print. combined? Like, how, yeah, how, right. what are you going to do there?
1: <laughs> printer budget is apt because so much of what, uh, anyway, it's a whole, yeah, it's, so much of clinical that <laughs> are still run on paper, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, no, no, the, the glib <laughs> answer is that we don't, com- well, well, we've started competing with them. We didn't until about six or eight months ago. But um, but you know, now that we're running phase one to four drug studies for major uh, pharma biotech sponsors, we, we have and are directly competing with, you know, the IQVAs the Park cells of the world, and you know, we're starting to beat them, which is awesome. So as an aside, like we're're we're, we're in this sort of final selection for quite a big, you know, phase two kind of study. And um, let's just say we know some folks we're competing against one of the biggest CROs for it. Um, and I just got a text message from some of the folks at this big CRO mm-hmm. who are like, it's like, yeah, everyone's shit scared because they know who you are now and they know that there's just no way they can compete. So, and it's like really gratifying, whereas like six to eight months ago, I doubt they even knew we existed. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that just to directly answer your question, like how we compete is, you know, we're never going to match their footprint, their printer budget, um, or not never, but like at the moment. But, you know, we just present an overwhelmingly stronger case on the things that really matter to the customer. So, that's timelines. So, how quickly we can start up the study recruit patients, uh, close the study out, um, and quality of data. And the way we do the way we do the timelines is you know we, we have access to real patient data. All the assumptions we make, everything we present is all sense checked against, you know, millions of real health records that we have access to and not just access to, but we can you know reach out to those patients and, and recruit them onto our clinical trials. Um, and then on quality of data, so just our software platform, how it captures data, Uh, stores it in a you know in a compliant way and you know a lot of other features that that spin off that um but you know it is hard and you we always the objection we always deal with is like no one gets fired for hiring IBM in this space no one gets fired for hiring IQVIA it's just that effect and it's just something you've got to grind through
0: so can we talk about the uh big vision with Lindus so you keep on going how you're going now and you are like a CRO slash anti-CRO but you're essentially (laughs) providing (laughs) this um, service for people and it's a huge market right but in terms of like a big big like you know rocket ship vision is it that you eventually vertically integrate and have your own pipelines or like what's the what's the next step
1: yeah so uh, you know uh, the vision is we just become the default provider for any company looking to validate uh, a health or biotech product because we can do it so much faster because we can we can evidence that running a clinical trial on our platform leads to materially higher quality data. Um, at the moment, you know, our vision isn't to become, uh, like, almost become a pharma company where we're developing, we're sort of buying our own drug products and then running them on our platform. That's definitely an avenue we could go down. Uh, a company I think is is interesting in the space um, is uh, TrialSpark. Um, but, um, uh, you know, they they did go down that path about four or five years ago. And I, I think it's a I think it's an interesting path. When I look at, you know, how much there is to do just in the arena of um, of clinical trials. And, you know, that's more than enough for one company to kind of to chew. And, you know, like at the moment, our DNA isn't the the kind of scientific inspiration or like, you know, inspiration behind a certain target or drug. Um, so I think we're just, you know, we're, at the moment, we're squarely focused on just executing better,
0: faster, more effective clinical trials. What did you take from the, your time as a VC and what have you brought to Lindus? Like, are there any things that you think you have been a bit smarter with compared to other founders who didn't have the VC background that you had from being on the other side of the table, potentially?
1: <laughs> yeah, all, all of the memes like roasting VCs who try and be operators are just like running through my head. Um, they're all unfair. I mean, I think, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of tactical stuff around fundraising um and it kind of bothers me that there are still loads of unwritten rules when it comes to fundraising um where you know if you've been a vc you you kind of know how to maybe avoid some of the, the potholes or like run a, a good fundraising or run like a tight fundraising process um so that 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 definitely helps i think also like you know just having seen having been as vcs can only be like you know very very tangent or like a very ringside seat to some pretty cool companies kind of helps give you that that lesson for like okay here's what a high performing culture looks like here's what you know hyper growth looks like here's what you know here's how things can go wrong um right. so that that definitely helps um but i would say you know clearly like the, the memes have a point where it, you know it's it's deficient in a lot of ways because like a vc a vc firm is like ultimately quite a weird organization where It's very like zero sum. It's very kind of tend to be very small, quite political. Uh, You know, it's not like you're, it's not really like you're kind of building a growth business, which is so, you know, and that way it's the job of VC itself isn't a perfect, a perfect kind of setup for being an entrepreneur. Um, But yeah.
0: What are the, what are the potholes that you avoided? Oof, okay. Um,
1: (laughs) uh, There's some that actually, so, so I think there were potholes that we knew were potholes, but still fell into anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> you know the classic things like hiring too senior too early. This is a mistake like almost everyone makes. I could even see companies I worked with as a VC making it, and we still made the mistakes. And it's like you know, you start the company, you're like shit. This is this whole whole area. Um, I, I'm not you know I'm not from this like this whole business function. Here be dragons. Like, what do I do? Let me just hire someone who like really knows this area, and and they'll figure it out for me. Like, no, wrong. That fails every time. Um, And we, you know, we made that mistake a couple of times. Um, And then I guess maybe on the fundraising front, you know, it's like very tactical things, like the classic one that I think some people make is like, you know, you're either fundraising and you're maybe as one of the founders, it's like 80% on fundraising or you're not and there's no middle ground. Like that's the way to play it. But the mistake is, you know, you kind of have fundraise and we actually made this as well. We have like early conversations with VCs before the we really know what the pitch is and they that kind of puts them off. And then, you know, we sort of poisoned the well a bit. Um, so, uh, but yeah, um, those were some of the mistakes we've made as I say, even though we should have known better and maybe I kind of knew they were mistakes for my time in VC. But uh, yeah, at least we won't be making them again, or at least I hope.
0: Yeah. Wait, sorry. The downside there is having um, conversations with half-baked ideas, and when you're not ready to kind of pull the trigger, is that's a bad yeah. thing because it that isn't that isn't obvious to me. It seems like having those warm sort of friendly conversations in the build-up and doing it as you go by would be beneficial. No. Uh,
1: I, I, for us, at least, it's it's almost always been a bad idea. I think it's particularly <laughs> bad in in the early stages when, you know, essentially the VC is backing you just based on your pitch really, Um, because for them, like the better your pitch, the more likely you are to raise a series A, which boosts their, you know, boosts their portfolio value. But anyway, um, so, you know, it was, it was definitely a huge mistake for us. Like literally every VC that, you know, we'd had like early discussions with when the pitch wasn't ready, like they, you know, they were like always the first VCs to kind of, or like turned us down very quickly and I don't blame them for it because our, our pitch just wasn't coherent, you know. And even though you can go to a VC and say, like, look, we don't have a pitch ready. This is just a casual conversation. They'll always judge you by the standard of all the other pitches they're seeing. So I think it's almost always a bad move. I think it can maybe work like slightly later, like Series B stage. And we are deliberately having just a few, con- like literally just a small handful of conversations with VCs generally kind of more senior VCs so that they, when they, you know, when we're raising our series B round, they kind of know us already and they've seen, you know, a a level of progress. But even so I do so like very sparingly. And I definitely not, you know, if you're having like early, like a a non fundraising general chat with a VC, like heavily caveated up front, just be like, look, we don't have a pitch. I can tell you about the market. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you very much about our company. Certainly not going to tell you any metrics. I think that's the, that's the way to do it.
0: One thing I find interesting about Lindus, and I find the, uh, maybe the positioning and PR side quite fascinating, but you've pitched yourself as an anti-CRO, right? Even though, again, you are basically a CRO. And I find that interesting because I think it hits on this um, chord of tribes. Seth Godin has really good writing on this in terms of how you can, as a business, position yourself, not only as, you know, like we make money and we pay you, but as like a tribe, like a... That people follow uh, like a cult, or just people in a you know in a very positive sense that people really get behind the vision. And one of his key points in that book is that you need to be very clear about what you are not, rather than what you are, because I think a lot of people can say, you know, you see this all the time with corporate BS like statements being like our values are like integrity. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think Enron's like some of their key values were like, like like integrity, honesty, openness, or whatever, and and then you see <laughs> that how that ends, and. Another part of it is that I think you are actually a lot clearer when you when you say what you are not rather than what you are. For example, you know if you were talking to an alien and you were trying to describe the difference between a dog and a cat, you can, you know, you can be telling them a dog is a four-legged creature with fur and they're very friendly and they hang around your house and the alien will feel like they understand what a dog is, but then the moment they see a dog and a cat together they're not going to be able to differentiate so I think that's like an interesting position, mm. but then maybe perhaps what I would speculate would be the downside is that when you pitch yourself as like a disruptor or that you are not this thing, or you are the movement against CROs, then, I mean, they're going to be your colleagues. They're going to be your business partners, et cetera. So there's like a bit of a, uh, a an L or a loss you take there. So like, has that been a very intentional decision for you? And do you kind of agree with my analysis? I totally agree with your analysis. Uh, It has been
1: intentional. So the problem we have is that, you know, I I agree with you, like, you know, I think we can go too far. The problem is that when we use any other words other than CRO to describe ourselves, people are kind of confused about what you do because... um, I'm serious. Like the, you know, there there are so many different kind of offerings that that make up, you know, a clinical trial. And so the CRO is just a useful shorthand. But at the same time, like, CROs are not well thought of in the industry. Like, I don't think I've met anyone in the hundreds of thousands of conversations who's had like just overall positive things to say about them. So so that I think that kind of explains like. But but I I, I you know, yeah, I agree with you that that there you can definitely over rotate on on uh, on uh, defining yourself by by what you're not I mean have you seen any of the companies who get the balance right do you think
0: yeah so the ones that immediately come to mind are like in the maybe d size space that there's a couple of good ones in there that aren't coming to mind um, like, like molecule uh, which ones or, um... yeah molecule yeah 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 and the other ones are maybe the more um, metabolic healthy slash lifestyle slash n equals one personalized medicine ones that are a bit more like we are against the medical establishment, right? We are against this kind of population-based treatment of you, treating you just like a number. I mean, one that immediately comes to mind is, say, Zoe, where they're very clear, like, this is, this is like personalized to you. Like, we are going to measure your metrics and you're going to get this diet that's like personal for you. It's not just what this food pyramid that's been paid by loads of outside interests and (laughs) influenced by big dairy or whatever (laughs) have suggested, this is for you whether whether or not there's like enough evidence behind that or not i think it's a it's a nice story that makes so maybe it's something about the enemy being vague is helpful as well <laughs> like when you you know you see a lot of conspiratorial people talk about uh perhaps like you know the 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 big man or the big like the, you know the the establishment, and it's it's quite vague. So I think it's easier to rail on those, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more than you know, a specific. That's, that's people. definitely fair. And, and I do think one thing that's
1: quite funny with our positioning is you know we are we are pretty open about being anti-CRO. The the most the other most negative people are other people like CRO people. Like the number of times we've had people reach out or just like you know like talking to someone who, who used to work for CRO and who works there currently, like we're interviewing them and they're like, I've got to say, I, I love your guys' positioning. Here's all this shitty behavior that I saw. <laughs> like, you know, here's all this like horrible ways in which the CRO model is broken. Like we've we've literally had people say like, you know, from who are at of CRO currently, like um, I'll do anything to work for you guys. I think my company is evil. I, I want to help, you know, I, I want to help like redress the balance. So, <laughs> it's, you know, we're, we're kind of aware we're, we're, um, you know, we, we, we do, we do lean into heavily defining ourselves by in opposition to the industry incumbents. But it's the nature it seems to the the nature of the industry, it seems to make it seems to mean that it it kind of works in this case. That was my co founder, Michael. Um, But, uh, you know, I think I think it has worked well for us, I do agree with you that that, you know, you do run a risk. and, And I think we'd love to find, or I think over time, you know, we'll develop a maybe a slightly more nuanced tagline that's like less outright negative but for, for the moment it, it it seems a pretty good uh it seems to really jive with with what we're trying to do
0: so mary do you have any billion dollar ideas in bio or health things that you might be approaching if you weren't working on lindis or big open goals that you see huge opportunity in yeah um <laughs> a few uh they're not going to be very coherent because lindis
1: is you know we're 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 fully consumed with lindis health at the moment um, I guess I'd say more there are sort of like big problem areas that I'm interested in or, or or worried about, maybe. I think one is definitely fertility. I read a book which really kind of reconfigured my my matrix on this subject a couple of years ago called The Decadent Society and uh, by Rust Outfit. And it very persuasively made the case that a lot of like problems, a, a lot of just the fundamental like kind of stagnation that I think we all like intuitively see around just general quality of lifestyle in like the cultural area as well, technological, perhaps it all kind of stems back to like demographics and an imbalanced population pyramid. And we're just in this scenario where, you know, we're essentially five to 10 years behind maybe Korea and Japan in terms of birth rates um, where, you know, populations are shrinking and you have fewer and fewer kind of working age people able to support older people. Um, And so I think, you know, therefore, if you think about like what we're doing at linda's health is like finding this like key bottleneck or pressure point in this whole industry i kind of think fertility is like another like really fundamental pressure point or uh, um or just you know bottleneck um and so yeah so so you know more, more concretely i think there's a bunch of things around you know fundamental technology breakthroughs around ivf and maybe surrogacy um where you know we've had ivf for a while it doesn't work perfectly uh, there's some stuff to do there. There's some kind of interesting models, like Gaia is one company in, in the UK that's doing some interesting things around, you know, not really innovating in the fundamental, at least as far as I know, in like the fundamental tech layer, but more like the experience layer, wrapping it around insurance, which I also can think can be impactful. Uh, yeah. And then there's some also models around, you know, actually how we do IVF and maybe even how we you know, not just look at it as a problem of of you know fertility and helping couples conceive all well, that's very important, but also like you know how how we use um how can I put this uh, how we use you know all the tools we have to ensure that uh, you know pregnancies are successful and just that you know people's families are set up to be as as healthy and happy as possible. Um, so anyway, there's a ton of stuff there. I haven't had much time to think about it, but it's an area that I'd love to uh, love to work on one day. Awesome
0: and. I I suspect you're not gonna give me a good answer for this, uh, due to humility, but what are any habits or ways you approach problems or what are things you do that you think have helped you get to where you are today? Like if we were, you know, looking back in twenty years and we're like, Oh Mary's this, this great this great guy, uh let's root back to like maybe some of the key um frameworks he has in his head, what would come to mind? I mean, Michael Young, your co founder he said, you're never accepting of the status quo. You're always pushing for improvement and you've got clear vision and push towards that. Uh, Mitty had loads of really nice things to say about you. He said that like one of the other things is that your incredible traits is just attracting high caliber people, employees, advisors, customers, um, et cetera, that you- <laughs> It feels like a humble brag. <laughs> um- <laughs> and, then, uh, sorry, and then he also um- said around that whilst other people are busy posturing and doing PR, you're just hard at work running hundreds of trials. And getting on with it and, and achieving great things. But like, what what do you think are things that have helped you?
1: So, okay. I mean, I think if I, if I look at like the company as a whole, you know, I feel like we've moved pretty quickly. You know, we're we're two and a half years old. We're definitely we've been consistently ahead of, of certainly like the targets and stuff we presented to investors. And I, and I and you know, I'm not sure I embody like high speed necessarily, but I think. Maybe as co-founders, you know, we've all really pushed that as a value and and made sure that everyone we hire kind of really embodies that like bias to action. And it's not just speed. I mean, it's also, you know, I think it's agency as well, people who are just not comfortable with the status quo. And if they see a problem, they can't help, but want to go and solve it. Um, Maybe just more specifically about me, I think a mental model that I find very useful when dealing with problems is just thinking about things from the highest level of abstraction possible. Like you're never, you're never going to have like all of the data decision. Paralysis is probably like the thing that kills people and companies, frankly, or leads to a lot of like lost productivity. And so just being able to step back and go like, okay, like what are the two or three biggest factors or like biggest things here? Let's just make a decision on that basis and not worry about, you know, all of the get lost in all of the details. Um, Thinking about mental models is actually one that I love, which, which I don't think many people are aware of, but, it's called a uh, OODA loop. O uh, O D A: Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And um, uh, it, you know, probably America's greatest military theorist is this like crazy guy called John Boyd in the sort of fifties and sixties who came up with all these frameworks. And um, you know, you can sort of see how they've been applied. Like they've been applied in the business world as like Agile. But I actually think like the original frameworks he came up with were, were most impactful. So like the, you know, one of the, the most the 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 ones we use a lot is the OODA loop. Um, and it goes back to this kind of, you know, just, it's super important that you just observe um, kind of get the data you need to make a decision make the decision act on it and that's super key and i think like nothing kills like productivity or, or just like teams or cultures more than like when you make a decision but then don't act on it because then that leaves room for you to go back and like second guess yourself and, and blah 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 so i think that's also been a really useful framework for just how uh, myself and, and just how the company works Wait,
0: that, that yeah. sounds pretty obvious stuff is the key thing there that you not only observe and, and decide and things but you actually do the action as well is that like the key part that you complete it that's that's probably the
1: yeah it's you go through the whole cycle because like something that i've i've experienced before is you know you kind of maybe you're in a meeting or something and the group comes to a decision which is already like anyway you come to a decision and then you just don't act on it immediately and then an hour later you're like oh wait is that the right decision and you just spend tons of time second guessing yourself uh and you know i think that that kind of decision paralysis can be fatal for or, you know, fatal for any company, but certainly a startup where you just, you need
0: to move fast. Yeah. I hope you enjoy that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you were listening to the audio version, you can find the video feed on YouTube and on Spotify by searching Big Picture Medicine. You can see my pretty face. And I've got a favor to ask. If you've been enjoying the podcast, then please just send it to someone in your life who you think might enjoy it. Send them this episode, another episode, the link to the whole podcast, whatever. But that would be really, really helpful. Okay, see you next time. Thank you.